0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you very interesting Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, hello. Hi,
1: J.D. It's
0: good to see you. I have uh, actually seen you many times this week because you and I went on a trip this weekend to uh, Rome, and then we were together working from our D.C. office for a couple of days, and then I just returned uh, back to uh, my Denver office, and also my Denver home, a couple of days ago.
1: Is it weird that I kind of miss you, you know, spending almost a week basically constantly in each other's company, that it now feels a little weird that we're not in the same room all the time?
0: Uh, probably, yeah, probably. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Okay, well, nevertheless, um, it, was, it was fun to get to spend all that time with you. I felt like that was um, good fun. I enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to see you virtually.
0: I, uh, I, I, it is good to see you as well. And I was glad to be able to spend time with you too. And, um, with that amount of small talk out of the way, uh, now it is time for us to talk about the thing.
1: The thing, what thing, JD? I just assume you want to talk about the extraordinary form again.
0: We could, I do want to talk about the extraordinary form again, but I don't think that we will probably have time to, or make it to that point in the conversation because Ed, we reported a story this week that uh, I believe was an important story. I believe is a, um, it is important that it was reported. I believe that it has made an impact in the life of the church. And I suspect even people who don't care for the story would agree that it has made an impact in the life of the church. And um, we have gotten a lot of questions about that story. And uh, so it does seem to me that now is a good time for us uh, to talk about the story, some of the factors of the story, maybe even to answer some of the questions that have been raised about the story, and otherwise just to offer some additional thoughts if we can.
1: I think that Probably that's what people are expecting, and you should at least, in the narrow confines of this podcast, give the people what they want.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so uh, to begin, um, Monsignor Jeffrey Burrell, who uh, was until Tuesday the general secretary of the U.S. Bishops Conference, announced his resignation on Tuesday. In a memo to bishops, to U.S. bishops, um, it was announced by Archbishop Gomez, the president of the U.S. Bishops Conference, that Burrell resigned ahead of impending media reports alleging possible improper behavior by Monsignor Burrell. Gomez wrote to Bishops, On Monday, we became aware of impending media reports alleging possible improper behavior by Monsignor Burrell. Uh, In order to avoid becoming a distraction to the operations and ongoing work of the conference, Monsignor has resigned, effective immediately, Gomez added. Now, Those impending media reports, the believed to be impending media reports that that um, Monsignor Burrell resigned over, uh, according to Archbishop Gomez, um, those impending media reports were pillar impending media reports, or there was an impending pillar media report at that time, and uh, and so we reported on Tuesday that Burrell had resigned, and we reported um, about the research regarding um, possible improper behavior by Monsignor Burrell that you and I had conducted, and the process by which we had brought that. by which we had brought that information to the U.S. Bishops' Conference and what had happened thereafter. And I want to talk about all of that stuff. But before I do, uh, I think it's important even for us to just start with the notion of a general secretary at a bishops' conference. Uh, what is a bishops' conference, Ed? And then I'll talk about what the general secretary is. Ed, what is a bishops' conference?
1: Uh, a bishops' conference is a creature of canon law. It is a creature of merely ecclesiastical law. And its function is to foster and facilitate levels of practical and spiritual cooperation and fraternity amongst the bishops of various dioceses, either for a region or more often a country. So in this case, the USCCB is, if you like, um, a a stable body for the bishops of the United States to gather and to, when appropriate and necessary, speak with one voice, um, coordinate their efforts, share best practice... Um, all of these sorts of things. It has a certain amount of uh, legislative or administrative power in different circumstances, but those are extremely narrowly defined by the law, and otherwise they can only exercise um, that sort of level of authority with the express authorization of the Holy See. And so, as we saw with this whole business over um, how to deal with the question of communion a few weeks ago, seems like a lifetime ago, um, the point that kept being made over and over again... A sim- a, yeah, a similar, a simple time that um, there, you know, there there was never going to be a, quote unquote, national policy enforcing who could receive communion when, because the Bishop's Conference isn't isn't authorized to do that. But there are lots of things the Bishop's Conference does do. It organizes various humanitarian and charitable um, operations at a national level. Um It also issues all kinds of documents on best practice for things like Catholic education, liturgy, uh, things like that. And of course, also, it is the place where uh, the Church's response to the last sexual abuse crisis has been located, that this has been the forum which uh, various measures following the disclosures about former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick were first um, debated first suggested, first fostered, and it is through the USCCB that things like the Dallas Charter and the USCCB Essential Norms were passed. Um, The Independent Reporting Mechanism, which is now in operation and has been for some time, is uh, a a sort of spin-off, if you like, of the USCCB. It is the USCCB that is basically in charge with encouraging, um, developing, and promoting ideas of best practice around the issues of child protection in the church in the United States. Um, and I think that's, uh, I, is that sufficient enough?
0: Yeah, that's sufficient enough. And and actually that's the thing that last thing is the thing that until the recent communion, um, debate over the last six months, the thing that the USCCB was sort of most in the headlines for over the past five years, let's say, was, um, the way in which it was the locus of, um, response or the locus of deliberation and response for bishops, um, to the 2018 sexual abuse scandal, um, which had to do um, I'm calling it the 2019 sexual abuse scandal but that's actually not appropriate. Um, it's better to call it the 2018 um, sexual abuse manipulation coercion and abuse of power and abuse of office scandal and the reason for that is because it is a scandal that was multifaceted when we say sexual abuse in the context of the church usually usually people tend to think that we're referring to the sexual abuse of minors. Um, which is an important thing that the church has been dealing with, obviously in different ways for a very long time, but most acutely here in the U.S. since 2002, um, but uh, in, in terms of the, the, the church is sort of having policy responses to it. But the 2018 scandal was um, was a broader set of scandals that had to do not only with the sexual abuse of minors, although it did have to do with that, but also with, um, with the abuse of uh, power, the abuse of office, um, and incidences, plenty of documented incidences of um, sexual coercion and uh, manipulation and, and um, in the context of the church on the part of uh, Theodore McCarrick, but also, for example, on the part of Bishop Bransfield of Wheeling Charleston, West Virginia, and um, uh, then uh, abuse of power for the sake of cover up on you know, in for example, the the part of Bishop Hepner, the the now resigned Bishop of Crookston, Minnesota, and other bishops now are under investigation for various kinds of cover-up, coercion, and, and manipulation.
1: And and also a lot of this was about the culture that allowed those men to right. operate and reach high office in the church.
0: Right. Yeah. If you think back to two, I'm glad you said that because if you sort of think back to 2018 um, and and thereafter, um, much of the discussion among people, whatever their uh, whatever their conclusions about what should happen. You know, were um, much of the discussion among people who are paying attention to the church had to do with the question of what kind of culture enabled McCarrick to do the things that he did, enabled Bransfield to do the kinds of things that um, he did, enabled other um, abusers, coercers, or manipulators to do the thing that they things that they did, and uh, and there were a lot of facets to that. But one of the facets was um, the kind of thing brought up by the now deceased psychotherapist. Uh, Richard Seip, who um, who uh, was a former Benedictine monk and who spent a great deal of his life as sort of an advocate for those who were the victims of clerical sexual abuse or coercion, who talked about the way in which immoral sexual behavior, especially illicit sexual behavior on the part of clerics who are bound to celibacy, uh, but also on the part of other church leaders, um, could lead to um, a broad sense of tolerance for any number of kinds of sexual sins. And, and, and Seip was very clear that, um, in his view, and he, he wrote this many times, that Uh, illicit sexual behavior on the part of clerics and leadership positions led even to uh, environments, cultures, and milieus, which um, enabled abusers like McCarrick to to, to practice their trade, as it were, because it led to um, tolerance to people who were concerned in some ways about their own ongoing sexual malfeasance being exposed, and to people who um, were uh, in positions of leadership who might be incentivized not to disclose or manifest the misconduct of others. Those were among the things that we all were talking about in 2018,
1: 2019, etc. And and as as I recall, there was broad consensus that these were all problems that needed to be addressed.
0: Yeah, there was broad consensus that these needed to be addressed. And the conference was, I mean, just to sort of go back to it, the conference was the sort of became the locus for these kinds of discussions. Not even because the conference was definitively empowered to sort of do something about all of these. In fact, I think all of us can remember that in a certain way, the conference was disempowered from doing something uh, about some of these things. The bishops were going to have that vote, and I I guess it would have been November, 2018. and um, The Holy See sort of famously intervened and told the bishops they couldn't vote on policy and then that retreat and then the Holy Father um, himself promulgated a set of norms uh, that had to do with sort of the, looking into to these kinds of things. But the conference was for several me- meetings of bishops in a row, sort of the locus in which the church leaders were sort of looked to in the United States to respond to this. Um, so, um, you know, in many ways, diocesan bishops were sort of, e- even in their own diocese, oftentimes sort of the conference was the central place in which these kinds of uh, things were looked to be um, addressed and in which they were responded to. Um, and there was, I think, generally broad consensus about the need to address these things, and especially broad consensus, it seemed to me, uh, about the way in which um, cultures of uh, of secrecy um, and practices of secrecy um, could lead to or facilitate or enable problematic tendencies. So, as one priest put it to to me, um, deception breeds deception, breeds deception, and that can very quickly get out of control. That was, that was the zeitgeist of 2018 and 2019, low those many years ago. So in that context and with the conference sort of as the locus of that, what does the general secretary of the conference do?
1: Well, I mean, the conference does a lot of things around this. Most importantly, it basically quarterbacks all of that work that's been going on. It prepares the agenda for the USCCB meetings when um, votes are taken and action items are approved. and. Uh, all of those sort of wheels are formally set in motion by the body of bishops. It's then the general secretary who then sort of rides herd over the various committees and departments within the USCCB to see that they're all working smoothly together and producing the outcome that the bishops want and expect to see. That his is really the, if you like, the, the administrative Final word that that's his function is that he's the man, you know, there's a president of the USCCB who is at the moment Archbishop Jose Gomez of Los Angeles, but Archbishop Gomez of Los Angeles lives and spends most of his time in Los Angeles. The guy who is in the USCCB headquarters in Washington, D.C. day in, day out doing the work is the general secretary.
0: Yeah, I think I think CEO is the right analogy. So, um, you know, you might think about the president. You might think of the bishops as the board of the bishops conference. And this I the analogy limps and there are going to be people who criticize it, I think. But they're gonna criticize that <laughs> we're already down the road. Uh, the analogy limps in various ways, but if you were to think of the sort of um, operational capacity of the conference as its staff and uh, the budget and the things in Washington, um, then you might say, in a certain way, that the bishops sort of constitute the board of that reality, and the president of the conference sort of constitutes the chairman of the board of that reality. And the general secretary kind of constitutes the CEO of that reality. I mean, he is the guy for whom the rubber meets the road um, in Washington on any given day. The people who work in the conference would say that he is their boss um, and et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yes. He's the one in daily operational control.
0: Yes. The one who resigned on Tuesday, Monsignor Jeff Burrell, um, was not the general secretary in 2018 during the McCarrick scandal. He was elected the general secretary in November 2020. In 2018... Um, he was the associate general secretary. There are there's a kind of cabinet of associate general sec- of associate secretaries general who who assist the general secretary in his work. Um, one of whom is usually a priest who is an associate general secretary. One of whom is the counsel for the at the at the moment the, the counsel for the uh, USCCB. Their their sort of head lawyer and uh, and then um, one of whom generally sort of oversees uh, pa- the pa- various kind of pastoral ministry offices of of the USCCB. So that's the um, that's the staff there. Monsignor Burrell was the, the associate secretary general. And generally, it is the case that the priest who is the associate secretary general is elected the uh, the, the general secretary at, at the time when the, the, the previous guy's term, and, and I think they serve five-year terms in, in the role.
1: And, and to be clear, during his tenure as associate general secretary, Monsignor Burrell was very much involved in the post-McCarrick work that was being done by the conference, that on one occasion when they flew to Rome to sort of meet with the Pope and present what they had done, he was in that party that went with them, that this is, you know, this was a guy who was very much involved in helping shape the church's institutional response in the United States at the level of the Bishop's Conference.
0: Yeah, th- that fell under his purview. Um, and he was a part of the team, the USCCB told us he was a part of the team that was coordinating all of that responsibility. He went to meet with the Pope about it, all of those things. And then elected general secretary, he was um, all the more responsible for it, the, the place where the buck would stop. That is the story there. Ed, you and I um, obtained, we're journalists, and, and um, one thing about being journalists is that um, you acquire pieces of information from various places. There, there are various ways of acquiring information, but it is often the case that one acquires information from sources who wish to provide that information to you for a particular reason, and of course, everyone who provides information to a journalist has some reason to do so, And has some sort of sense of a desired outcome, but often it's the case that a person is providing you with a piece of information that can be used in an objective uh, manner, even if they sort of have a particular thing that they want you to do with it or something like that. It's almost always the case that, um, which I'm not saying is the case in this in this case. I'm simply saying, you know, one thing that has been raised a lot uh, about the piece of information we can we acquired is that oh, someone must have given it to you, and whoever gave it to you obviously had an agenda. Well. The thing about that is you and I acquired a data set um, that gave us um, uh, indication, a a very wide data set um, that gave us information about the use of um, any number of apps um, and the way in which those apps could be um, correlated to um, unique devices, not to names and telephone numbers, but to unique devices identified by sort of a long string of numbers and to the location in which those devices, um, the geolocation in which those devices used a variety of um, of apps. The reason why data sets like that exist is because when any of us um, put an app on our phone, uh, we generally um, have to give the app consent to use the data that we supply to it and sometimes data that we don't supply to it, but other, even to other data in our phone, we generally have to give consent to the app to um, capture, commodify and, um, and put on a, mar- on a market um, information about us as a unique mobile User, in other words, to sort of commodify as much as it can about our use of an app and about our phones, and to make that available to uh, people who wish to buy it. Generally speaking, who are advertisers, and generally speaking, what those advertisers want to do with it is to better sell us toasters and um, and washing machines.
1: Well, as the saying goes, if the app is free, you are the fee.
0: Right. That's right. That's I've never heard that saying before, but it's true. If the app is free, you are the fee. So, an app company, no app company, no internet company of any kind is operating out of the goodness of its heart. So um, if you have an app that you do not pay for, um, and even if you have an app that you do pay for, it is usually the case that the intention of the company that makes the app is to make money by commoditizing information about you and selling it to people who generally are advertisers and want to know various things about you. But in order to allow the app to do that, you have to consent to allow the app to do that. And usually you have to give, um, in fact, more than one kind of consent. Usually you have to accept terms and conditions, but you also have to, for example, allow the app um, allow an app if it's going to commoditize your location data um, to have access to your location data.
1: Um, Even more so if the entire function of the app is to make use of your location, if that's right. its functionality.
0: That's right. And generally Google speaking, Maps
1: doesn't give you great directions if you can't tell Google Maps where you are.
0: Where you are, right. Exactly. It can give you point to point directions, but it can't sort of tell you what Chinese food is near you or whatever. Um, and, uh, and, and so one must consent to those things, and, and one can always change one's consent to those things. One can have an app that it allows loca- for which it allows location settings sometimes, but not all the time, or which it turns off location data all the time. Um, but one um, must uh, permit apps. You know, one, in order to use an app, is generally required to consent to some iteration of the terms of condi- and conditions and make a decision about the degree to which um, they will consent to that. That is the nature of being a consumer of mobile technology in the 21st century. Uh, Now, there are people who would say, yeah, but most people who do that don't have informed consent. I... I struggle with that. I, I I struggle with the notion that most people who um, use their phones in the 21st century and download things onto their phones don't understand that the principal purpose of those things is to make money, and that one way to make money is to sort of collect information about it and, and use and, and, and use that information. And one reason I struggle with that is because it's a well-known cultural and social trope that if you sort of talk about things, I mean, everyone sort of says this, and no, I'm not sure I even understand. The extent to which it's true. But, you know, if you're talking about Christmas trees in front of your iPhone, the next day, you're probably going to see a lot of Christmas tree ads in Facebook or, or whatever. I mean, this is sort of so well known as to become a cultural stereotype.
1: Yes, that is true. Um, it's also the case that, um, I don't know that it's a case of informed consent because we have all, I would imagine anyone who has a smartphone is aware that there are these long, long, long pages of terms and conditions to which we agree when we download the app. The fact that you don't read the terms and conditions before you click them doesn't mean you aren't informed. It's it's a choice you make. You choose not to be informed or not to read them or to assent right. anyway or to whatever else. So it's not a question of, you know, informed consent. The consent is informed. You're just, it's the, not a question you, you, of
0: whether there's informed consent, in other
1: words. Yeah, there is informed consent. It's just you've chosen to exercise your informed consent at the point of, well, there are terms and conditions, but I don't choose to I'm understand. I'm sure
0: they're fine. I accept them. Um, I'm not concerned about it. I, I have nothing to hide or I don't care or whatever. yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, but the fact of the matter is that is the nature of these kinds of devices. So um, with those with 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 that in mind, um, these uh, the, the way it works is that um, apps, uh, have something inside have a, something inside their code called an SDK, and that SDK captures all of that emitted data signal and then transmits it into um, an, a, an ecosystem in which it can be sort of quantified or, or laid out uh, mathematically or, or numerically and then um, you know, purchased by people who ha- have interest in using it, and that's reality. And those things exist as data sets. You and I acquired a very large data set that offers a great deal of information about people using data, you know, emitting data app signals from a number of Uh, a number of apps. We acquired it, I want to say, a couple of months ago.
1: It took us a while. Yeah. Well, and the first thing we did when we got it is we had to have it independently verified. Find
0: out that it was what it purported to be. We got yes. it and, and we had been given reason to believe it was what it purported to be. But we made sure, first of all, that it had been legally acquired. And second of all, that it was what it purported to be. And a lot of people, Ed, are saying to us now, um, well, where'd you get it? Tell us where you got it. You have to tell us where you got it. Because maybe the person, as I was saying before, maybe the person who, maybe the source from which you got it had some kind of an agenda. So you have to tell us where you got it so we, can, we have a right to know that. W- what is your sense of that?
1: Uh, I, I, I do not know and I cannot guess at the motives of many of our sources that we use for different stories. And frankly, they are of um, some but uh, limited interest to me. They are of interest to me only in as much as I have to evaluate the potential for there to be an agenda and them acting as a source for us and how that might skew the veracity of what they're telling me. And this is true of, um, you know, sort of if you like hard information in the form of documents or data or whatever else. And we've had documents of all kinds leaked to us before over the years. Um, Or even human intelligence, people telling you what they know from going about their daily business, places they've been, people they've talked to, things they've learned. Um, it, it's important something that's going
0: to happen because they something have that's going to, going to happen an announcement that's be come yeah a, right. a person yeah. who's
1: been appointed to <laughs> to They're an important job. archdiocese yeah. for example or yeah. you know um, an important you know document that's about to be released or things like that um, so it's important to evaluate any potential uh, agenda or or reason I mean you know the definition of news is something that someone else doesn't want printed but it's also something that someone does want printed. So you have to take that into account. But really for me, the the primary concern there is, well, how might this affect the reliability of what we're being told? And the, it is for this reason that you have to do rigorous fact checking. If you're dealing with human intel, you have to find a second or third source to make sure that, you know, you can confirm that this is real and you're not, you know, just taking someone's word for it. And the same thing with documents. You get given a document, you have to authenticate its provenance. And the same thing with data. You, you know, if someone gives you a data set, you have to know where it came from. You have to know it was obtained legally and you have to know that it is what it purports to be and is not being, um, you know, sort of partially or misrepresented to you or anything like that. That's That was my concern with it, and that's what we did with it.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's exactly what we did with it. We authenticated and, you know, it.
1: And being, being satisfied that this is something that was obtained uh, perfectly legally and given to us perfectly legally and is exactly what it was purporting to be, and again, you know, we had to find someone to do that for us, um, really from there, I don't really care what their motivation is right. because that doesn't impact what I can do with it. So
0: Now and, and and for what it's worth, we are not the sing- solar singular journalists who have obtained data sets of mobile app data just like this. And well, no, um, I mean such our such... friends down at the uh, down at the old. Uh, uh, infamous and 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 lurid New York Times and I'm saying that kind of in quotes because those are the sort of things people are saying about us now but the New York Times has acquired data sets like this and acquired it from people who they said um, we acquired this from a source who could not be identified because they were not authorized to release it to us and that's that and then went on to make any number of analyses about people's lives and behavior and and these kinds of things by virtue of that data set
1: yes um, and you know lovely graphics I, I've seen right. <laughs> I've seen a story that they published cool back in February that if we
0: had if we had the kind of, you know, if we had a bunch of money in our in our disposal, we, well, you know, I don't know what kind of super cool graphics yeah, we made. They used anyway. exactly
1: but, this same kind of data um, back in February to identify who did what, when, and how they went where via their, via apps on people's mobile devices on January 6th. January um, 6th,
0: at the ca- during the capital version yeah. right? I mean, yeah. So... Yeah. Yeah. So this but that's is. Not, a, but
1: that. But uh, that. I mean, I struggle to see what the difference is here between those two uses of the data, except that some people liked what that was being used for, and other. Well, people, people. say so. that it's
0: different. So, so you and I, we got, we got this data set, and we began to analyze things. And what we were principally interested in, as we began to analyze it, was sort of like trends, and uh, and, and o- an overall picture. We were interested to get an overall picture of. Sort of the use of various kinds of apps in the context of the Catholic Church, and and, and we looked at that. And at first, we we're sort of trying to decide what kind of reporting would come out of that, and those kinds of things. And and basically, as we did some of that overview thing, um, we we did we we essentially identified or became aware that in that data set, which again we were sort of looking at for questions of what can we report from it, exactly as the New York Times did when the New York Times sort of went to that data set themselves to say what can we report from it about the capital incursion, and we have. I think it's perfectly fair to say we ha- had been curious, what can we learn about um, the church's efforts at reform and systematic reform vis-a-vis this data set? And as we looked at that, it became clear to us that um, uh, a USCCB official, the former general secretary of the USCCB, was um, using an app, a location-based hookup app. With, uh, with a great degree of uh, regularity and um, from a number of kinds of places that a cleric would not ordinarily be expected to attend.
1: Yeah, uh, well, but first we noticed that a grinder user was effectively attending a lot of ecclesiastical functions in ecclesiastical places that are not, generally speaking, where you would find anyone um, being present all of the time unless they were in some way affiliated with the church at a high level.
0: Yeah. If so that then we sense. then that, yeah then it became clear sort of that this was to be official and, and
1: I mean this is well but the, so this is something that I think is worth making clear because a lot of people have been coming at us and saying you know well you've clearly you know you someone must have tipped you off and you went looking for Monsignor Burrell uh, because you knew something and you knew there's a, uh, which is actually not true it's the opposite is true that if you have a large data set you start you know, it's basically like um, it's like panning a river you just keep shaking your sieve. To, to get rid of the stuff that's not of interest to you until you're left with something that you can use and, and see. And in our case, there was a, a particular glaring outlier. Uh,
0: that I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. So, Ed, why is it news? I mean, people come to us all the time with um, information about like, I don't know if you have this experience, but someone will come to me with like someone who teaches at a Catholic university or someone who works at the parish or You know, someone who's involved in a competing Catholic media apostle or something like that to tell me, like, well, I think this person is having an extramarital affair, or I think that this person is um, involved in financial malfeasance of some kind. And I even have um, evidence of that. Um, You know, I have evidence that this person who is in some way connected with the church is a sinner, and you guys should cover it. And 99.999% of the time, that's not news. But this felt to us, seemed to us, judged to us, thought to us, both. To be news. So, what what is the difference, and why is this news?
1: Well, there are a couple of differences. The first, I mean, there is such a thing as people's uh, everyone being sinners and people's sins being, by and large, private. And there's there's nothing to recommend the indiscriminate naming and shaming of people for moral failures just because you can. That's that is unethical, and that is not something that I would hold with doing. And it's not something I believe we've done. Um, but what is different here is, first of all, you have the intersection of a particular kind of repeated moral failure, which was apparent to us, um, but a moral failure that uh, overlapped directly with a particularly senior ecclesiastical office and the competence of that role, that in the light of the McCarrick scandal and everything we learned about it and the questions that we all agreed had to be asked and answered after that about accountability and about ending a culture of um, of risk from mutually supporting secret sins of people who are in authority, not isolated lapses. Or even just
0: breeding a culture of tolerance by breeding virtue, a culture you know, of fostering tolerance. facilitating a culture of tolerance yeah, by virtue and, of, of, of private, uh, you know, of the serially private sins of, of, of public figures.
1: Right. And again, we're not talking about an, you know, an isolated moral lapse or something like right.
0: that. We Th- both, that, in fact, we both have said on this show a million times, People are entitled to moral failures. We believe that. People are entitled to moral failures and and repentance and reconciliation and to a legitimate good reputation. There's a difference between that and serial and consistent um, uh, immoral behavior on the part of a public figure charged with addressing public morality, isn't there?
1: Yes. And there's also a compounding factor, uh, which in this case is the particular means by which this was happening, which was this app whose only listed function is to facilitate the meeting and exchange of images and then meeting in person of people in your proximate area for sexual contact. Like that's what it's for. It's a hookup app. That's that's mm-hmm. its job. That's what it does. Mm-hmm. And this particular hookup app has also a long track record. And this is not us saying this. This is not our um, evaluation. This is not our assessment of it. This is the assessment of academic studies. This is our, This is the assessment of law enforcement officials. This is the assessment of, you know, Boston NPR's investigative right, news
0: WGBH's story this month. Say this month. WGBH says what? Um, what do you remember the headline of that story? I, I can't remember the headline, but it was. I mean, we linked to it in the story. Uh, I found it. Popular gay dating app Grinder poses exploitation risk to minors. Right. This is WGBH, Boston NPR. Popular gay dating app Grinder poses exploitation risk to minors. That's right. not JDNet or homophobes. That's Boston NPR.
1: That's Boston NPR. And again, right. Academic studies from Northwestern University, from Stanford Medical Stanford. School. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the the, the list goes on and on. The, the the until two months ago, I think um, spokesman for the Federation of UK Police Chiefs, with a specialization, you know, with special responsibility for child exploitation, has right, called this exactly. out. I mean, to, yeah, you know, and so there's that. There is a manifest risk to children, not from gay people which many right. people have insisted we said or insinuated, which we did not and would not, and of course we wouldn't. Would
0: not and didn't and don't and and, and, and won't. I mean, and in no it, way it, it, would.
1: Yeah, right, and, right. you know, I mean, that's it's it's, an, it's a markedly disingenuous criticism, but, I mean, we kind of expected it, and, you know, it, it's a shame. But the point is, no, gay people are not a risk to children.
0: Right. Gay but people are not a risk to children. This app is. And the reason for that, or a part of the reason for that, is because um, th- these studies have found that Uh, a high number of teenagers who are um, uh, experimenting with their sexuality or learning about their sexuality, discovering their sexuality, however you wish to talk about teenagers thinking about their sexuality, but a high number of teenagers who identify as LGBT. One study said uh, around 25% or one in four, 14 to 17-year-old boys who are identifying themselves as LGBT have said that they use such apps, location-based hookup apps, in order to meet um, people, and many of them have said that they do so in order to meet people to have sex. So, if adults who do wish to pray on children know that, and again, you know, we're not saying gay people wish to pray on children, but if adults who do wish to pray on children know that, these apps become a mechanism for the exploitation of children. And that's the reason why, it's it seven priests in, in recent years have been uh, arrested for child predation using location based hookups that we have found? Right.
1: And, and to be clear, they have, and this is, the, this is the third compounding factor in this case, is that there have been cases not just of priests and cleric, other clerics, deacons and things like that in the U.S., several in the U.S., the United Kingdom, Ireland, Italy, you know, across all of these countries being arrested for sexual contact with minors that happened through Grindr. It's not just that, it's that some of those contacts were inadvertent.
0: Right, exactly. There was a priest exactly in South right.
1: Carolina who was arrested for for you know, for having um, for trading sexualized images uh, over Grindr with someone who turned out to be a minor. And the priest is not facing, at least as I'm remembering the story, um, civil prosecution for abuse of a minor because he did not know it was a minor.
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: Because that's- as with all of these apps, and I don't think this is in any way particular to Grindr, but this is one of the risks posed by such apps to children is there's no age verification. Like you have to enter
0: your date of birth, but right. that's not Verified. So Right. that's that's exactly right. So the goal is not to imply that Monsignor Burrell is connected in any way with children. Um, the goal is not to imply that Monsignor Burrell isn't connected in any way with children. But um, a thing which there is evidence that Monsignor Burrell used consistently during the period in which he was an authority um, is associated with uh, the abuse of children. And the question becomes. Is the person who has considerable influence over whether, for example, the conference encourages technology accountability as a platform of its own safe environment response, who himself uses apps that probably ought to be prohibited in the general sense of the church's approach to child and youth protection, um, in some way, does he have his judgment uh, 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 – is the public interest impacted by the individual use of a thing which others might use um, for – nefarious purposes with with this regard is judgment impacted in that way now you could say um okay but some people drink drink and drive and you know we don't therefore say no cleric can drink wine that's true um but here's a different example some clerics historically and if you read the history of sexual abuse in america you will learn that um while a very small number of clerics in the history of the united states um have sexually abused children um of those who have sexually abused children, many of them used their own cars to groom children, so they would take kids on rides and take them you know for a ride in the country if they were city kids or take them in their car to an amusement park or those kinds of things and by that um, do two things: one, gain trust and two sort of habituate kids to being alone with them in a car um, and three eventually it, be, it could become the locus of abuse itself, so recognizing that. Um, recognizing that that is an infinitesimally small number of clerics, that 99.9999% of times when a cleric might ride in a car alone with a kid, nothing bad would happen, we have nonetheless accepted as an unbreakable rule in the contemporary American church that a cleric does not ride alone in a car with a kid. Everybody knows that a cleric does not ride alone in a car with a kid, and a cleric would never risk riding alone in a car with a kid, lest he be accused of having done something untoward. The same thing could be true here. I I do not know what the number of adults who use such an app who might come in contact with a minor is, but let's presume that it is infinitesimally small. In the same way that everyone knows that a cleric doesn't ride alone in a a car with a kid for the purpose of child and youth protection and also for the purpose of um, the cleric self-protection, lest he be accused of something or, you know, um, it it seems totally reasonable to say the church must ask, um, is is there a similar technological analog where no cleric would use such an app because of the because of the way in which an infinitesimally small number of clerics have already been demonstrated to use the app inappropriately, does that make sense to you, Ed?
1: It makes perfect sense to me, but it is apparently, you know, high science and you know, incredibly complicated algebra for a lot of the people who read our story, which I'm mystified by.
0: Well, anyway, so these are the these are the reasons why we thought this was news. Um, So then the question becomes to us, and I think there are probably others, but these are some of the initial reasons why we thought this was news. Um, Then the question becomes to us, what do we do with it? And here's something that we talked about and prayed about and taught spiritual direction about and also journalistic. I mean we talked to journalists and got advice from journalists about how to handle this and and, uh, and ultimately decided – that we wanted to approach this both as journalists, that is to say, with a mechanism of public accountability, that we think there are a number of questions of public interest here, among which is, what are the processes at the USCCB by which a person who is um, you know, serially engaging in misconduct in this way is hired? What are the vetting processes and what should be the vetting processes? That becomes a matter of public interest. Um, with, with that in mind and several other things, the question becomes, how do we, what do we do? And um, we, we recognized, uh, we had decided at that point, this is a matter for public interest and we intend to report it. So how do we report it? How do we sort of go about it? Um, what we what we didn't want to do is just sort of like, we didn't want to report it in a way that was um, uncharitable or irresponsible, even why we thought it had to be done. Is that fair to say?
1: I think it's very fair to say. I we we talked about this between us and the decision making process was incredibly lengthy because we wanted to come up with a way that was the way that would hopefully trigger the most um constructive response and demonstrate that the church's own mechanisms for accountability work and that it's possible to do things like say hey we've we didn't go looking for um, you know, dirt to on, trap someone, but we, came we, aware. Aware. Yeah, we, came we didn't go looking for dirt on an individual, but we found this and this strikes us as being a problem. And how, who can we tell and how can we explain to you what we found? And then you can tell us how you intend to deal with it. And then we can go from there.
0: Right. That's exactly right. With no pressure so we,
1: on with not with a and you've got three hours to respond or, you know. Right.
0: In, in fact, yeah. And, and not with you. And, and our intention was never. You do X, y, or Z that we think is the right thing or else we'll report it that's that's actually not journalism that's blackmail or exploitation rather, um, our intention was to contact the appropriate ecclesiastical officials to say we have become aware of this set of problematic issues, and we would like um, you to have time to respond to it proactively um, in advance of our reporting about it and um, you know to decide how you would like to respond to it and respond to it proactively in advance of our reporting about it and, and- I think this is an
1: can I just say, I can't tell you how many stories that have been difficult for, for me to write and for us to write that have begun with going to someone in a position of ecclesiastical authority and saying, what I would really like to write about in this situation, what I would like us to begin with is writing about the church's response.
0: Right. We and, don't and want to lead with saying... the problem,
1: we want to lead with the solution.
0: By that, we're not saying you have to have the response that we're telling you to have. No. We're just saying you, we think you're going to take this seriously, think it's something that matters, as we do, going to want to respond to it. And rather than sort of reporting this is the bad thing that happened and then you guys react, we'd like to give you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to respond to the thing. And then uh, we're actually praying that our response, our, our reporting will be here's how the church has responded to this thing. Um, that, that, is a, that is a mode that we believe is a mode of ecclesial reporting. So we contacted the conference and we, we said to them that we had awareness of um, serious misconduct on the part of, a, of an official of the conference and we would like to have a meeting with some conference members of conference leadership and um, it would be an off- the record meeting in which we would apprise them of our um, of our knowledge and give then subsequently give them time to respond to that before we reported. We contacted the conference uh, to that end. Uh, it took a little bit of time um, uh, but that eventually the conference said they would like to have a meeting like that with us. The meeting was scheduled. Um, and then the meeting was canceled, and uh, the the then day before the day before the, the meeting, meeting was, was scheduled for a Monday and night. it was canceled right. Sunday evening on Sunday night. And we we didn't get a reason why. I asked why and was just told that that was the decision, but we didn't get an answer about why. Um, and uh, and then um, we were asked to submit questions in writing. So we did submit questions in writing. We basically submitted questions about the things that we were aware of in writing, and uh, we again offered to meet. And the next day, we were called and said that the conference needed more time. We had asked for responses by that afternoon, Monday afternoon, and the conference said they need more time. And we said, sure, we'd be glad to give you more time. And um, then,
1: uh, then the, the conference next day, the next day, we were also again contacted by the conference, well, would you
0: consider entertaining a meeting now? No, no, no. Oh, sorry. That's not sorry. right. The first, the conference sent no. First, the conference sent us answers right. to the questions, but the, yes. but they answered some of the questions, but not all of the questions that we had sent. And you know, the, the answers were rather short, and we wondered if maybe they had intended to elaborate in some way. And so we contacted the conference and said, you know, will you be sending any more? And they said no. And they said, would you be open to having a meeting with us late this afternoon? And um, we sort of. Uh, Said that we had we had told them that our intention had been to publish something at noon that day, and uh, and they said we understand that, but we'd like to have a meeting with you late this afternoon. We were sort of confused by that, and uh, and um, we moved that meeting from late that afternoon to early that afternoon. And as we were on our way to the meeting, we discovered that Monsignor Burrell had resigned, and that that had been announced to bishops. And so uh, we reported um, we reported all of the things that we reported, namely um, that Monsignor Burrell had resigned and um, what we understood about why. Because we believe that all of that fits into a narrative about, um, first of all, the, the issues and the way, and we think those are issues worth discussing in the church and, and the way in which they impact the life of the church, but also the conference's response. And, you know, if we weren't journalists, Ed, but we, had, we were people who had information in a different way, you know, or had awareness of things in a different way, I still hear from people who say that they have con- try and contact the church in various ways about concerns that they have and aren't heard. And that is, um, to my mind, really unfortunate. And so I do think... Um, you know, and, and the conference is free to say, well, this is because they were journalists, and it wouldn't ordinarily be the way that we respond or something like that. But I do think that, that we had a meeting and the meeting was cancelled and back and forth and these kinds of things, and there was some sense of, not, you know, of of not wanting to meet with us. I do think that's a part of the story because I think questions should be asked about sort of what is the protocol of the conference when someone wants to come forward with information, whether they are a nefarious underhanded journalist or something like that as we are, or whether they're just a person with information. You know, one of the most heartbreaking things to me in the Carrick report, was when the um, superior of a, a community of religious sisters called the Apostolic Nuncio and said that she had information about McCarrick. And, you know, if you read the report that they sort of look into it and they think, well, she's only looking to make a name for herself. And so they, they ignore the, a- ignore the information. I don't think that the conference thought we were only trying to make a name for herself, for ourselves, but for whatever reason, the um, the meeting was canceled and there was a lot of this back and forth. And, and we think that the question of, you know, what does that mean about what the church has, Learned or not learned is a relevant question. I, I just do think it's a relevant question, period. But it's not the kind of thing we relish reporting. No, None, none of this is the kind of thing we relish reporting. Um, none of it is the kind of thing that, you know, we talk about the church a lot on here. We love the church. We want the church to be holy. We think that there's a place, you know, in in the role of the church for journalists who are working towards the systemic reform of the church. But um, but But we don't relish any of this. Neither, neither one of us are happy to. I
1: hate Being, it. Yeah, it sucks. I, 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 it's not that we don't enjoy it. I hate it. Like, what? Yeah. Who wants to write bad news stories about the thing that they right. love?
0: Who wants the bad? Who wants there to be bad news stories about the thing that they love? Yeah. I... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, um, but we became aware of information, and this is how we proceeded, and that's an answer some questions. So now, the thing that has been most sort of talked about is the thing about privacy. Um, you know that. And, and a, a charge that um, our reporting is sort of unique in using commercialized, consent-given commercialized data um, in this way. Uh, our reporting is sort of unique, and we cross the line, and gosh, it's sort of everywhere that you know we cross the line, and, 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 and that that is not ethical. Um, it, I have been hearing and seeing that a lot, and uh, Ed, I'm curious what your response to that is. I have my own, but I'll... You know.
1: I, well, my response to that is, first of all, this is not... There are... I don't know that you can mount a particularly compelling case for a person's privacy when you give consent for that to be made public. Like if, if you have an app on your phone, the purpose of which is to broadcast your location. Um, I don't know that you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, you know, it, uh, if we were following someone around, uh, you know, 24 hours a day and poking lenses through windows, yeah, that's a gross invasion of privacy. And or that's if we unadded. broke
0: laws to hack into information yeah. or something like that. Yeah.
1: Or someone else stole the data and gave it to it, you know, uh, fine. But that's not what we're talking about here. This is, you know, this is, if you like, um,
0: even there, by the way, I mean, there are people who have leaked over the years, military and government data, That they were not authorized to leak and been imprisoned for it and become, you know, something of folk heroes among certain cadres in America. So I don't even think it's universally agreed upon that someone who steals data and gives it to journalists is, you know, that that everything after that is fruit of the poisonous tree. Because that's demonstrably not true in the way that people have responded. No, I'm just talking about a
1: reasonable expectation of privacy. If someone has to steal it to get it, there's a reasonable expectation of privacy there. Agreed. Yeah, agreed. Um, If it's for sale, I don't think. You get to say, well, there's an expectation of privacy there, I, and and you know what we're talking about is not, you know, um, unlocking you know some some secret or or confidential information. What it really amounts to is, you know, more or less what I said is looking at a riverbed and panning,
0: um, panning it out until you do you see things. Now you begin- think about you know, okay, where are the places where we'll find the things that we're interested in related to the church? I mean, you know, it's not as if we'd start by looking at a national stadium or something like that. Right. But yeah, you're right. I mean, then you sort of just look to see what there is.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you, you would, any, any normal person looking at a large data set like this and saying, well, we want to identify if there are any to identify um, patterns or, or systemic trends that we think are, are worthy of attention. You you look at places where you would not expect, for example. A hookup app to be used right and if you see a lot of usage there from a lot of different devices then you might question your methodology and say okay well fine we need to you know perhaps account for i don't know tours going through there or daily whatever right. mm-hmm. else um but if you look at it and you and you discard that and so you set certain parameters for you know we want to make sure the same device is there all the time or over a course of a certain number of days or you know things like that and then you do that, and you see another number of devices, and then you do it again. And again, you keep refining down, and you find, well, hang on. This one place where only people connected to the senior life of the church are present, and there's only one device there, and it's using it all the time, and then you can track that device from you know, pinging in other places where only people associated with the high-ranking structures of the, the
0: church would be, right? It, yeah. Then
1: then it becomes a thing that's like, well, you, you can't ignore that. You can't unsee you can't, it.
0: Right. That's right mm-hmm. you know, but you I can't... think there are people who say you never should have looked in the first place you never should have looked at these data sets in the first place and i I just don't I you know I, I just don't land there I just don't land at the idea that you know um, there are certain things to which people have consented their information to be part of that um, you know there's some common cultural consensus are off limits to uh, to to use or to exploration or proof I mean I just don't well I don't I
1: look I Do I? I,
0: It's clear there is no common
1: cultural consensus around this because people consent to this information being commoditized and companies buy it all the time for the purposes of marketing and all that other sort of stuff. Now, no one. I don't remember a firestorm being kicked off by The New York Times in February when they tracked individual people on January 6th. Uh, presumably and the because- Times
0: found a guy down in Kentucky who was who in, in infiltrated the cap whose phone said he infiltrated the Capitol, and he told them that he didn't infiltrate the Capitol, and they said, "Yeah, but his phone said he did." And and the Times said very, something very interesting. They said, "We only name people in the story who consented to be quoted." Um, and what's really interesting is the the Times does not say sort of what the nature of that consent was, how how much they told the person about what they would be saying. Did they call the person and say, "Can we ask you a question about the Capitol incursion?" And the person said. Uh, sure, because I wasn't in it, and then they said, "Well, you're, you know, your phone said otherwise," and suddenly they had him in the. Search. I mean, is that the kind of level of consent that he gave? It's not at all um, any more clear that that you know that that is or that isn't the case, and that didn't kick up a firestorm. That there, this data is used in journalism and has been used rather consistently since the Capitol Incursion, and, and I think in other cases too. So, um, you know, the New York Times had, you know. <laughs> The New York Times has had other stories where they've tracked sort of people going around New York and written sort of about privacy, but the really interesting thing is watching the data of people going around New York. So that's a sort of monetization of data that capitalizes on people's privacy too. Um, I, I think that the notion that there's some clear hard line that, um, that is not here, what we considered is it, this information is publicly available by this person's consent. This is a person of public interest and this kind of activity correlates exactly to his profession and, um, and his status in the church. We cover the life of the church, and we cover his process, profession. He consented to the um, commercialization of his date Of this data, we have it by legal means, and uh, and it, there is a there is a compelling public interest in understanding it, which at first meant just asking the conference questions about it. Now, if he had said, you know, no, I wasn't in this place at that time, we would have, in a certain way, it would have been the ballgame for it. We would have had to go back and figure out what that meant, and did we, you know? But um, but but that wasn't the case, right? That wasn't the case, right? right? And. Well, and again,
1: but this goes to the whole, you know, thing of a criticism that I've—I um, want to put this moderately—a criticism that has been suggested to me repeatedly is that we ought to have gone to the church first and to Monsignor Brill first, which we did. We did. Now we, we did, did not. We did, we did, we did not publish a story right. and then say, aha, what are you going to do with that?"
0: We, we went we did, and said, "Here's what we." But if he had told us we were wrong and demonstrated that we were wrong, we wouldn't have had a story. I mean, we went with the intention of journalism. We wouldn't have had a story if we were wrong uh, and, and someone had you know, demonstrated to us that we were wrong. And um, and again, this is information to which the person has publicly has consented to the commercialization of. And this is a public figure who's chosen to be a public figure. And we did go to the church. to yeah. your point. And to him.
1: Right. Yeah. We sent questions to him directly. Right. We didn't receive a response to those questions. We still haven't received a response to those questions. What we, under- we what, we've, what we received, it, it, all we have in terms of a direct response from Monsignor Burrell to the questions we sent him is that while we were on our way to a meeting at the USCCB, we read online that he'd resigned.
0: Yeah. Um, that's right. Now, I do understand. I don't want to dismiss people who say, yeah, I think that's an ethical line. I, I, I do understand that, that there are people who, who think that's an ethical line, and I do want to say... This is something that you and I have thought through and prayed through for a while, and we—I think we have—I hope that we have earned the trust of at least some people to say we don't sort of lavish being sensationalistic for its own sake. We don't even—we don't really like um, doing this kind of thing. Sorry, you're making a face.
1: I well, no, it's a face of strong agreement because you know yeah. it's the idea that you know oh well you guys are doing this to make a name for yourselves you've got to be kidding me no, I don't like sucks. it. when – yeah, I don't like it when people listen to the podcast and send me, you know, send me DMs that say, ah, I've guessed where you went on vacation. It's like, are you kidding me? I hate being the center of attention yeah, like
0: and this. basically being the center of attention right now for us means basically that a lot of people are calling us terrible things, which we knew would happen, right? so. I'm less
1: concerned with people calling us terrible things because like I think 90%, I, I, no, not 90%, that's, that's wrong. I think a large percentage of the people who are doing that are doing it deliberately and disingenuously and uh, impugning us with motives that they know absolutely we don't have. Like, we're doing this out of homophobia or something like that. I think that's a that's a certain large percentage. I think another group of people are just taking someone else's word for it and aren't actually aware of what we did and why and the compelling public interest within the life of the church that we believe justified the the story that we ran and why. And I'm sorry that they have, you know, the, if they're making these, let's call them deeply personal and strident criticisms out of a position of uh, impartial of, of only partial information. Well, then I'm I'm sorry about that. And that's what it is. But, you know, I, yeah, I the idea that, you know, we're we're in this for the clicks like you got to be kidding me. Yeah. like we don't get paid by the click sensationalism yeah, does us no good problem.
0: at all I, you know. right yeah we want the, the, what we get paid by is developing relationships of long-term trust with people who subscribe to us and, and you know and so uh, and this is sorry this is what I was trust trust say. Is essential to our thing
1: this is this is what i was this was what i was making a face to saying it's not just that we hate being the center of attention but work is basically shut down because i get anyone on the phone yeah, to talk about really real news there's a vatican right, finance exactly. trial kicking off next week and i can't get anyone to pick up the
0: phone you know why because of this yeah So, um, yeah. So, but to your point, you know, I don't know what the percentages are. Um, but I I do think there are people who are legitimately sort of who have legitimate questions about the ethics of the privacy questions involved. And, um, and I appreciate that, you know, I don't know what the percentages are, 90%, 10%, whatever. I I don't know. But I think there are people who legitimately have questions about the privacy concerns. And, uh, and, and I know that in part because some of them have unsubscribed from our newsletter because they have written to us and said, I'm unsubscribing to your newsletter because I don't agree with you about privacy. Well, okay. Um, and that is fair enough. And if a person doesn't agree with us about privacy and that's so egregious to them that they do not wish to subscribe to us, I think that that's fair enough. I, I would just say this. I think that um, I, I know that for myself, I have done a lot of real deliberation about questions about what, who has a right, you know, who, wh- what we have a right to do about with other people's information or information that is about other people and, um, and, and privacy and these kinds of things. Um, You know, the code says that no one has a right to illegitimately harm the reputation of another, and people are sort of jumping on that altogether. I think that the questions about privacy and journalism and uh, reputation and these kinds of things have to be meted out in every single particular instance. And in this case, it is my judgment that uh, a person who um, is a public figure in not only sort of um, a society, but in a confessional society, which is to say by that I mean a society which is – Um, defined in part by uh, adherence to a set of doctrinal principles and a set of moral principles, not only a public figure in that society, but a leader in that society, and one who is responsible and charged with uh, overseeing a particular area uh, of competence um, that has to do with the church's reform of the scandals of 2018, um, who is um, engaged in activity that might um, compromise his judgment on those issues, that might compromise sort of the church's response on those issues in which the church's response is important that which might embolden a culture of tolerance um and that which therefore might it's not just a culture
1: of tolerance this is something that another person we spoke to and was quoted in the piece that if you have um if you have someone living a a moral double life at odds with their public and official function and they're in a position of authority they don't have to do anything actively that uh, passively around them be, it becomes dysfunctional.
0: That, right. Yeah, that's know, right. Yeah.
1: That, you know, it, yeah, it's, if right. you, all of those relationships are insincere, and that insincerity, is in, you know, there's no, we do not in the Catholic Church believe in such, I mean, there is such a thing as privacy. I'm not saying there isn't. And I'm not suggesting that we should all go to public confession and things but, like that. But
0: we don't believe in private sin because we know that one person's sin affects all of us and so it exactly. affects the people around us. that That all sin is in some way systemic because it harms relationships. Sin harms our relationship with God, but it also harms our relationship with one another because we're the communion of the body of Christ. Yeah, yeah, we think that matters. I mean, we think that matters, and that's not sort of gotcha for us. It, you know, it's sort of we gotcha, or this is not sort of our just sort of um, attempt at a sort of silver-tongued explanation for doing a thing. It's the it's the, the animating purpose but behind the thing, and um, that does not mean that we take pleasure in it. But it does mean that is our judgment about you know that is our judgment about privacy. If people disagree with us, okay, fair enough. But um, I do think it. I do remember back to two thousand eighteen and two thousand nineteen when. It, there was consensus about the idea that um, one did not have a right to a private double life when one was occupying a position of authority in the life of the church. And I, 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 I'll tell you something, Ed, I was really, um, you know, I started my career in the church, in the church working for dioceses. And, um, I know, you know, 2018 and 2017, those were moments of transformation for me because Moments of transformation from a disposition that says institutional self-protection above all or the rights of an individual above all to to recognizing the way in which um, uh, clerical sexual misconduct in the church does hurt us all and the way in which it has so many facets. And now having talked with people who have been involved in clerical sexual misconduct in one way or another, you you see that um, it is something that we as a church have said that we're going to take seriously for a reason because we know it's something that harms us as the body of Christ in a serious way. And I think that's important. I'm praying for all the people who are involved. Um, I'm, I, I really am, um, which would include Monsignor Burrell. I, I really am, uh, you know, not in a sort of uh, thinking that I'm better than them way or something like that, just praying for them because I don't want, I want everyone to know um, the, the, the the joy of the Lord. And, um, and yet the church is a society and public accountability is something that's important in that society. And I think people have that was one of the things that people said most, most especially in, in 2018. Why did it? And gosh, imagine if imagine the infinitesimally small percentage in, if, in which we learn this thing, we don't report this thing, and then something very bad happens. And the question becomes, well, did Ed and JD know? And why didn't that? You know what I mean? Uh, I just think that's not how this is well, supposed to work.
1: Uh, let, let's not even go to the, the worst case scenario. But let's just go to a, a not unreasonable scenario of, you know, the, a couple of years past, people get promoted... It's not out of the question that someone with a you know a, a stable tenure as general secretary of the USCC gets made a bishop one day.
0: and It's often the case. It's usually the case.
1: Yeah. It's and then and ends dark. up, um, you know, if this is a, a problem, uh, you know, a, a repeated moral failing, which, is again, is part of one of the criteria that we thought was necessary to meet. It wasn't an isolated incident, but was clearly a, a deeply um, repetitive moral failing. And it's a bishop who ends up getting caught doing nothing more than violating the church's moral law. Right but in a very public way the scandal is amplified there.
0: Right. So anyway, th- those were we just wanted to share with you some of our own responses to some of the questions that have been asked. I think it is important to have discussions about privacy. These are our positions about those discussions on privacy. Um, they're not our uh, they're not our uh, fixed and, and unchanging positions on privacy because I think it'll be interesting to have the discussion. I know many times in which my own perspective on things has changed over the years, but this is after some serious deliberation about all this over in the in, in the course of all of this. Um this is where we are and, um, some information about that. And there, there you have it. Yeah. Well, Ed, what do you want to talk about now?
1: Uh, well, we could, I, we could talk about the extraordinary form cause that's the, was the other thing that has been going on. We, you know, last time we did this podcast, we were in Rome and the, the new motu proprio from Pope Francis had just come out and, you know, we, we were recording it. I, I don't remember because that whole sort of, um, 48 72 hour period um kind of all blended into one hazy mm-hmm.
0: night sleep, rope, yeah
1: no, yeah, no, no neither yeah. sleep nor awake um so i can't remember if we recorded on the day that it came out or the morning after or um within 24 hours of it coming out was when we were recording it i i can't remember past that but anyway the the, the thing we were saying is it, you know a lot would um remain to be seen about how this motu proprio would be received, how it be implemented. Because of course, and, and this is, you know, not particular to legislation passed by Pope Francis, this is true of all legislation is, okay, there's the law as passed, and then there's the law as enforced, there's the law as it is lived. Um, and so, you know, we, we were going through a lot of the provisions of this law, which we thought would be tricky, to to implement or would throw up diff, you know sort of incongruities between how it would be able to be lived in different times and different places and one of the things we noted in fact i think it was you who noted it on the podcast last week was this particular thing of parochial churches not being allowed to be used for the extraordinary form anymore um we talked a little bit about how in some countries like italy for example most dioceses or at least many dioceses have way more churches than parishes you know Uh, Many of the cities, the towns, the villages are stiff with beautiful old churches, many of them designed and built centuries ago for the celebration of the Eucharist in a way in which is, you know, well suited to the celebration of the extraordinary form now. And so not to be able to celebrate the extraordinary form in the parochial church, the sort of seat of the parish is is no great stretch. It's like, well, fine, we'll go across the road. That's you know that's great, no problem. But in other places, if you live you know somewhere in rural Kansas, there's your parish church, and that's probably 20 miles away. You know, so you're kind of stuck. Um, and I think this is this is something we still need to wait to see how it shakes out. But um, the the thing that I think is interesting is how how the bishops are receiving it so far, and the bishops in this country have all been, I think, uh, with one or two exceptions, um, very much of a, well, this is a new thing, this changes the circumstances very much, and I mean, in, in fact it's completely new circumstances, everything before was is abrogated and all is new again. And so it requires, in the words of a great number of bishops and archbishops and cardinals, um, prayerful reflection and study as to what the sort of new status quo is going to be. Um, and we've seen basically, I think, the vast majority of bishops whose reactions I have read have said basically everything can continue as before for now. Until we have a plan that we're not going to turn the table over and, you know, freak out and everything else, we're going to do this well. That is there going to be a transition? Yeah, because there's a whole lot of new law here. Um, but we're going to manage that transition and we're not entirely sure how long that transition is going to take but there does seem to be, and I'm I'm pleased about this, um, a general willingness amongst the bishops in the way in which they are responding to the moto proprio, to manage the transition as well as possible and to have um, little in the way of a sort of cliff edge hard stop. Um, you know, for any of the communities that have come to rely on the celebration of the extraordinary form in a particular time and in a particular place with a particular priest. That to allow that to continue for the moment until some other kind of plan can be formulated, I think is is good. And I think it shows... Um, it shows how cascading authority and legislation in the church can function well, that there can be a decision at the universal level and the understanding that the principle of subsidiarity kicks in. And, you know, that, well, how are we going to receive this law here? Not to say that, you know, we get to pick and choose which parts of the law apply, far from it, but to say that. Uh, the reception. This is something that you cover a lot in canon law. If you study canon law, um, you, and if you read, for example, the the not sainted but still very revered Gratian, um, you know you will read a lot about. It is important also in how law is received, not just how it is promulgated. That the law, just law, the concept of just law in the mind of the church is not just an exercise in authority. It's, if you like, a relationship between um, the one who has the authority to promulgate law and the community which receives the law. And so there, you know, the, these two things operate in tandem. So I'm I'm really Pleased to see this principle being lived out in a lot of these places. Cool, I agree. Okay, I was I was going to ask you if you wanted to talk about um, any particular examples that you found interesting and why you found them interesting. And
0: well, I did find interesting that the um, the decree problem. Well, uh, two I th- two the two bishops who are sort of the strongest in their response in the United States. Most bishops sort of hunted. Two bishops were the strongest: Bishop Tony Taylor of Little Rock, Arkansas, and Bishop Tom Paprocki of Springfield, Illinois. Couldn't be further from each other in their response. I think Bishop Taylor's response. Was to uh, I think significantly um, limit the extraordinary form in in the diocese of Little Rock, and I can't remember exactly how the limitation worked, but I'm I'm kind of looking it up right now. Okay, so kind of to say um, we'll now only have the extraordinary form in um, two parishes. The diocese of Little Rock, by the way, it's the entire state of Arkansas. To say we'll now only have the extraordinary form in the two in two dioceses that are entrusted to the pre of St. Peter, and that kind of limited it from other places which were parochial churches and, and territorial parishes and as they said they would, no lo- you know, they would no longer have have Mass uh, there, so uh, a limitation. But nevertheless, an implementation of the thing. You know, the Pope says to the Pope says to, you know, the diocese of bishops should make judgment, the guy makes judgment. So not that we're going to study it, everything's a status quo but here's what I'm going to do. Okay. Um, bishop Tom Paprocki of Springfield in Illinois which is um, north of Arkansas if you're keeping score at home, uh Said uh, I don't think due north of Arkansas, but I don't know that for a fact either. Upriver, um, you can say upriver from Arkansas. Is that something you can really say? Well, there's the Mississippi, and that's yeah okay. And the Mississippi is an the, 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 Arkansas is bordered by the Mississippi River. I know nothing of
1: Arkansas really. Uh, now I'm really exposing myself to a geography fail here. I assumed that it was. I feel like all of those states, the Mississippi's kind of the border running right through the middle of a lot of them.
0: Probably, I mean, I'm, now I'm going to kind of look it up. Now you got to um, look it up
1: because I'm I can't have this, this hanging over my head.
0: The river border the these and I'd like you to name the states that the Mississippi River touches, and then we're going to get back to the extraordinary form. This is going to be a little all test. the states, all the states that run the Mississippi River oh, runs. Through. Good lord, okay, it starts. I'm going to count them and tell you how many there are. Uh, One, uh, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten states the Mississippi touches, passes, uh, passes uh, between, or whatever forms the border of, or otherwise runs through. Okay. Give them to us. Do you want to start at the top or the bottom?
1: No, I'm starting at the top. It, so it starts in Minnesota. Yep. So you've got to have Iowa, Wisconsin, Illinois, um, bum, 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 Missouri, yep. Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana. How many am I up to?
0: You need two more.
1: Oh, it kind of touches um, Kentucky at the bottom
0: of uh-huh. Illinois, doesn't and it? It touches Kentucky. What else? Tennessee. Tennessee, nailed it. Hey. All ten, well done. So upriver from the diocese of Little Rock in the diocese of Springfield in Illinois, um, Bishop Tom right well done, buddy. I really am proud of you there. Um, uh, especially because, like, do you guys study? Do you? You're you're English, obviously, and do you guys study uh, American geography in um, in England, or did you just pick this up since you since you came to this land?
1: Uh... It would be a fair characterization to say that the schools I attended did not lean heavily into American geography. No,
0: you probably know where things like Kentshire are, though.
1: There's no such place as Kentshire.
0: Oh, really? I thought I thought every city in England you called the surrounding area like Londonshire or Liverpoolshire. Isn't that how it works? No. <laughs> are you sure? Yes. But you can say Cambridgeshire. This
1: is a this is a common complaint I have living in the United States, actually, is that I get a lot of flack for, oh, well, you know, you don't even know, you know, random American geography where questions. Like, is. Yeah. No, it's not that. It's like, okay, fine. I, you know, maybe my, maybe my exact knowledge of where certain cities are, usually diocesan seas within the geography of a particular state. I, I like, I could not find, for example, if you asked me to, I could not put a pin in little rock on a blank map of arkansas i I will admit to that i can't do it i it's nothing against little rock or arkansas i just it's not a particular piece of information that i have seen and assimilated because i have not had need of it fine and yet the same people who will make fun of me for that will usually drive around washington dc with a giant sticker in the back windscreen of their car for a, a european usually english football club and i guarantee you they couldn't find that city on a map under any circumstances for any amount of money. Now, I if I had... I do not know what the minor league baseball team is in Little Rock. I imagine they're very good, and I'm sure I'd love to go to their games. However, if I had a hat that I was wearing from the minor league team in Little Rock, I would feel obliged to at least be able to place it correctly in the state of Arkansas. And yet, I the people who criticize me for my deficiencies in American geography often do not feel any kind of reverse
0: obligation. I'm just noting that. Well. That's American cultural imperialism for you. Am I right? Yep. Okay. So, uh, just if you're keeping score at home, the Arkansas Travelers are the official minor league baseball team there in Little Rock. Oh, okay. They're known informally as the Travs. I want you to take a. I want you to take a just a shot at it. Either uh, what class you think they're in. Uh, I'm gonna go with double A. Nailed it! You nailed it. It's that you kind of, wanna, it's
1: that size market, so I, yeah.
0: Yeah, so they are, uh, they are, um, let's see. I'm Ooh. trying to
1: figure out what league they're in. We're getting way away from, you were going to talk
0: about Bishop Paprocki's response. It's been a to- long week, buddy, and now I'm freaking curious where the Travs, what league the Travs are in. No, fair uh, enough. You're right, it, you're right, it doesn't matter. Uh, okay, you're going to get one more point, and then we're going to move on. And you get that point, if you can tell us what, uh, major league team the Arkansas Trabs are affiliated with. I'll give you a hint. If both the father and a son were rehabbing on the DH together, they might play a couple of games down in Arkansas before they headed back to the big leagues in uh, the Mariners. The Mariners, that's right. Well done. I, my, I would was not have Ken guessed Griffey that hint? except for your hint, so thank you. My, well, thank you, Ken Griffey and Ken Griffey. Junior. Okay, back to it. Uh, Upriver from Arkansas, in the diocese of Springfield in Illinois, Bishop Tom Paprocki issued a decree implementing the the norms of uh, Tradiciones custodes, and, uh, and and he, you know, looked at this sort of complicated question about parochial churches and just said, well, you know, what we're going to do is we're just going to dispense from that norm because I'm the diocesan bishop, and the bishop wants and, and the Holy Father wants me to be the sort of chief of liturgy here in the diocese, and in my judgment. Um, It is a value that we have these in two different – in in two parochial churches. We have the extraordinary form in our diocese, and therefore I'm simply going to dispense from the requirement so that in the parochial churches of our diocese where the extraordinary form is now celebrated, it can continue to be celebrated. Um, Sort of what's really interesting about that, I suppose, is that practically it leads to to sort of the fact that the extraordinary form is celebrated in two places in each of those dioceses, Um, although it should be noted that the Diocese of Little Rock is much geographically larger um, but it it, it, mar- it represents a sort of markedly different response um, from from that of the diocese of Little Rock, uh, Bishop Taylor, and at the same time represents um, sort of a willingness to take up this encouragement from the Pope to be the to be the sort of chief um, liturgist and to make discernments about these two kinds of things and. Uh, most bishops are sort of right now kind of in, in the u s in the middle saying well we 're going to study it we 're going to study it." but I think a few models are going to emerge, one of which is restrictive in the way of bishop Taylor's. that sort of limits it to these extraordinary form places, and one of which would probably be more uh, broad, as was bishop opprakis and and you know the uh, the interesting thing about that is that it could sort of become i suspect the degree to which the extraordinary form is permitted in the dio- in, in any given diocese is going to become sort of taken by a lot of people as a way to read. Sort of the theological inclinations, sort of way of taking a quick read on the theological inclinations of the diocese bishop, for better or for worse. I never love those theological quick read sort of tools because they're usually so reductive and not very helpful, but people love them. And so I suspect how many places is the extraordinary form permitted will become, um, you know, a, a, a the kind of thing that people look at in order to make a kind of quick read on what they think of the diocese, even though what's really interesting is, again, it would not work very well. That kind of thing doesn't work very well because Little Rock, which has a restrictive policy, and Springfield, which has a permissive policy, both end up with the exact same number of places where the extraordinary form is offered, too. And so, the problem with using those kind of things—how many places is the extraordinary form permitted—as a sort of quick read on you know any number of theological nuances about the diocese—is uh, is, a, is a severely uh, lacking tool in accuracy. Yep, that is what I have to say.
1: Well, I think that's that's good. That's good. That's good content, JD.
0: Well, thanks buddy well everybody uh thank you you have been listening to this episode of the pillar podcast in which we have been talking i I don't like to do this thing where we talk you know just about sort of why did we report a thing that we reported or something like that i like the podcast to be something where we can provide additional you know conversation about other things and and those kinds of things instead of we started the podcast for us we, we started the podcast for us as a way as a place where we like to just hang out and talk about what we think about the news of the church you know as opposed to just start reporting on the news of the church and i I'm always bored by like what I call ink on ink reporting. In other words, like people who report about other journalists or having talk about other journalists. I just I, I never like it. In this case it seemed to me appropriate, given that there have been questions about our reporting to offer some reflections thereon. Um and I hope they were helpful to you. And if you have questions about them, I'm sure that you will send them to me because many, many people have been sending me questions. And if you don't agree with me, it is possible to express to me that you do not agree with me without telling me things that like that I'm, you know, a human pile of effluent as some of the um, emails and and other messages that i have gotten in the past few days uh have said uh but you know whatever floats your boat and if you are one of the people who have written to us in recent days to um give us your uh thoughtful and um respectfully expressed or even kind of charitably expressed uh opinions whether you disagree or agree with us um we're grateful for the way in which you have conveyed those things to us so thank you yeah the pillar podcast is a production of pillar media and ed and jd joined I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Condon. See you guys later.